Welcome to the Something Something Experience Podcast, Episode 53. I'm Michael John Simpson. This week, I sat down to have a chat with my dad, United States Air Force Captain, former president of the Center for Research Libraries, and world traveler, Don Simpson. We chatted about his life, growing up in upstate New York, his academic and military career, work in library sciences, his love of film and music, and world travel. Bad kitty pooker. Here's Episode 53 of the Something Something Experience. Yeah, good. All right. So, how have you been enjoying uh, our state here and our visit here? Well, this has been a good time. Uh, haven't been out here since uh, two of you got married. But yeah, yeah. It's been good. Missing my wife not being with us, but she's yeah. down in San Diego. Yeah. So, it's been uh, fun getting caught up on things. And cool. Seeing the house that you bought. And Thank you. Uh, eating good food and uh, getting around a little bit, so cool. it's nice. Good, good. Yeah, it's uh, it's always good, to, good to chance to catch up. And uh, Danny and I are wanting to go out to Chicago next next year. And, mm-hmm. uh, it's been a long time since I've been out there. I came out for that short weekend. A few years well, back. you've seen some of the things there, but Danny hasn't seen Did, it. So, yeah. and I think there's a lot of things there that will interest her. I think so too. Mm-hmm. I think so too. Art Institute, that kind of stuff. So. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we can really talk about pretty much anything you like, uh, just kind of whatever you're interested in or whatever and that kind of thing. And maybe about, uh, let's start with, uh, kind of, uh, your, your life and stuff. Like, um, uh, tell us, uh, where were, where were you born and grew up and went to school and that sort of thing? Well, let's see. I was born in Ithaca, New York, which is the home of Cornell University and, was not actually living in Ithaca, but rather my parents were living in Trumansburg, which is a small town up the hill from Ithaca. Okay. And we actually moved fairly soon from there to Elmira. Okay. Largely because this was during World War II, and my parents were working at uh, war industries. Okay. Uh, like munitions plants or well, machinery Remington plants? Well, Remington Rand had a big plant in Elmira, New York, and they converted from making typewriters and so on to making war materials. Okay. So we did that and uh, lived there. In fact, uh, my parents lived in Elmira till they died, and uh, I lived there until college. Okay. And then went on. But uh, it's... Uh, Elmira's an interesting little town. Uh, it's smaller now than it used to be it was uh, really that's that's unusual for a town to shrink you mean in terms of population or in terms of area uh, no in terms of population okay it was about uh, 50,000 people when I was young and now it's about uh, 27 28,000 people a lot of people moving out of kind of the smaller towns in upstate New York well yes people moving away from New York State because the taxes were high and because there wasn't a lot of industry, okay, and a lot of the industry that was in existence uh, kind of folded and oh. didn't keep going. So that factories, was, plants, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like I said, Remington Rand had a big plant in Elmira, uh, one of their largest. But that Remington, folded. as in typewriters. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. Remington typewriter. Okay. Yeah. Right. And so that folded, and uh, that lost a lot of jobs. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so a lot of people left, and then, of course... That was kind of like their version of Flint, Michigan, kind of the yeah, industry folding Yeah, and people up. got older and uh, died off, and 
a lot of the children had moved somewhere else and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, so on. And uh, so I did that, uh, went to high school there, and then went on to college, uh, Alfred University, which is to the west of, of Elmira. Okay. And um, did that and then went... Uh, uh, Worked about six months or so at uh, the Elmira Water Board, which is the water utility. For mm. the, oh, you worked there? Yeah. And, Doing what? Uh, well, a number of things. I worked uh, the radio to contact the uh, the workers on their trucks. So you're like a dispatcher? I was doing that, and I also drove uh, dump trucks. Oh, interesting. Uh, huge trucks. Really big trucks. And uh, did that. Something like almost as big as some of these SUVs that these uh, suburbanites drive. Huh? Oh, much larger than that. <laughs> much larger. <laughs> and uh, I was doing that because I knew that I was going to be drafted. Because we were then in the uh, point of... Vietnam, and uh, that was going to happen. So, so you wanted like a vocational type job, so that you would be placed that thusly in the military, or no? No, no. no I was working a job that paid reasonably well, uh, and was not too difficult, and to just keep me going until I was going to be drafted, and then in, I guess about. December or January of that year, and at that point I had been working there about six months. So this was 62, No, this was 64. 64. And I went on to uh, uh, keeping this job going, and then I got a draft notice uh, for the Army in uh, to be drafted in February. So I just kind of looked at that and thought, no. <laughs> and so then the day before I was to report for duty for the Army, I enlisted in the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, went off to basic training in Texas, San Antonio, Texas. Mm-hmm. And then went from there to, uh, uh, let's see, where did I go from there? Then I went to a... Um, an aeronautical school in, uh, actually in um, central Illinois, sort of central southern Illinois, and did that. Uh, uh, that was a about a seven-month school. Okay. And learned all about aircraft maintenance, and uh, uh, then I received a, uh, an assignment from there to a strategic air command base in Plattsburgh, New York. Plattsburgh, New York. And went up there, and uh, so I did that, and uh, also served overseas. I went uh, to, for about a year. I went to, uh, I was stationed in uh, Okinawa. I was stationed in uh, Southeast Asia. Did a number of things at, uh, uh, well, around in Vietnam and uh, Thailand. Did you actually go to Vietnam during the Vietnam War? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. But you were in, a, obviously, you're in the Air Force, so you spent a lot of time base side doing stuff, doing kind of more clerical things, or were you, you, well, were, you weren't out there with a gun shooting anybody. You no, were, I was an officer. Because so you already had a college degree at that point. I had point. a college degree, and they were taking people who had college degrees and uh, putting them through uh, officer training school. Okay. So that was, which was another three months, and I did that, mm-hmm. and then went uh, 
doing more aircraft maintenance, and then I was actually working mostly when I was on in Okinawa, working job control, which is sort of the maintenance uh, coordinating agency, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and you're in radio contact with all the workers on the flight line. Okay, and did that uh, till I uh, came back to the United States, came back to Plattsburgh. And then I decided, I guess I didn't want to do that anymore. Right. So Well, real quick, but, but while you were in the Air Force, you moved up pretty quickly because kind of like people vacating spots and they were kind of moving people up a bit. I mean, you, you became a captain in your mid-20s. That's not yeah. common. Yeah, I was a captain, and but actually the last year I was in Plattsburgh, I was filling a lieutenant colonel position. You hadn't so, been promoted, but you were filling those shoes. Well, I was an acting lieutenant colonel. Wow, that's pretty cool. And pretty young. <laughs> 25, 26, yeah. yeah. And uh, that uh, was very good experience. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was, in essence, second in command of the deputy commander for maintenance operation, which had about uh, 3,000 troops in it. Wow. So it was... Now, Nationwide or just that base? Just that base. No, just that base. Okay. Yeah. And that was a B-52 and KC-135 base. So you were working on bombers, the, yeah. big, the big girls. Yeah, yeah the big yeah. ones. Yeah. Wow. Uh, these were actually B-52Gs. Mm-hmm. Uh, H was the latest uh, airplane in the B-52 line, but there weren't a lot of those uh, around yet. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. Uh, the G was a... Uh, uh, there were only about four bases in the whole country that had G's. Okay. And it was a very sophisticated airplane, and I can't talk about it because it's classified. Classified, of course. Yeah. And I don't know whether they're still flying those. I suppose they probably still are flying the G's and H's. I don't know. but So I did that, and then I uh, decided, well, do I really want to do this? And so I applied to graduate school okay. at Syracuse University. All right. And that came back. I would imagine they were really happy to have you because here you are. You already have a bachelor's degree, captain and acting lieutenant colonel in the in the Air Force. They probably snatched you right up, huh? Well, you know, it's really different uh, because so many of the graduate students were not really into the military. Yeah. So graduate yeah. school was very different about that, and they really didn't look at you being a military veteran, even if you were high up in the system. Huh. So it really didn't matter that I had been in the military. and uh, So I guess, yeah, the attitude has changed. The, the, the academics probably thought you were a bit square. Well, I didn't push the military background, ah, okay. and I got into that. Um, we, I didn't live on campus. I was married to your mother by then, mm-hmm. and we, uh, we lived in... Uh, kind of the northern end of Syracuse, and I drove down to uh, the university, and that, uh, and I had some classes at night and some during the day, and that all worked quite well. Uh, finished up the degree in a year, mm-hmm. uh, and then went, uh, took my first job, which Wait, was, you, yeah. you finished up a graduate degree in a year? Yeah, yeah in master's. one year? A master's of science, yeah. Yeah. Holy shit, that's, mm. that's, that's a lot of work. Well, yeah. That's... Four years worth of load in one year. But I'm bright. <laughs> this man was a lieutenant, acting lieutenant colonel at age 26. <laughs> so anyhow, we uh, 
I and hardworking, I must say. You're you're a very nose-to-the-grindstone kind of guy, so yeah. Yeah. you kind of always have been unafraid of, of getting in and getting your hands dirty. So, And I took a job uh, from there in uh, Geneva, New York. Actually, we were living in Geneva, but the the job was in Cuca Park, New York, at Cuca College, which is a small, maybe about five, six, seven, I don't know what it is now, but then it was five or six hundred girls, all girls school. Oh, darn. Yeah. <laughs> and it was uh, interesting, although I didn't, I wasn't the director of the library, I was a department head, and I didn't really like the library director, he was a little strange. So I moved on uh, when a job came up, and I went to work for the uh, state of Ohio at the State Library of Ohio in mm. Columbus. Mm-hmm. And I worked there about four and a half years, close to five years, uh, doing uh, as a department head in the running their um, processing center, which sounds like it's not much, but actually it was cataloging. It was called the Catalog Center. Mm-hmm. And it had, it had not only the, the workload from the State Library itself, but it also, I built the uh, whole system so that uh, we added a lot of libraries around the state and did their processing, and I added about 200 libraries to the thing Wow! and doing that. So that built up a lot of money for the State Library. Sure, sure, sure. And so you've got like the catalogs of all these libraries kind of all combined into one central catalog. No, no, they were all kept individually. Okay, okay. Yeah. And, uh, but you were organizing or heading up the processing for all of them. Well, we did have a central card catalog which had cards from all these libraries, but it didn't have the multiple cards. It didn't have subject cards and all ah. that. It was just basically a title, title card. cards. And, but it also kept track of what libraries had it. So it was, in fact, a solution to problems that the State Library Reference Department would have when it couldn't find a particular book. So they would come to the catalog center and look it up, and they would be able to go They'd get it. They'd come in into your door and say, hey, where's this book? And you'd yeah. be able to say, it's here. So, and that's kind of the precursor to the modern computerized catalog, which tells you exactly where a book is at any given time. Yeah, this was not really uh, in the era of uh, computerized catalogs. Although we were beginning to talk about it, right? Well, I mean, I mean, conceptually, not not technologically speaking, but kind of the precursor in terms of organization mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. of of having a, a yeah, and that worked out uh, that worked out pretty well. So I did that for about five years. Uh, the uh, state librarian was a good guy. He's passed on now. Uh, I noted that on internet a while ago. But you were also at the time working on the OCLC system or, or helping to facilitate the creation thereof. Well, I was the liaison between the State Library, which was the, uh, which was the opportunity that various agencies had to get money from the State of Ohio legislature mm-hmm. and then pass it on. And the State legislature would write a check which would go to a state agency and then the state agency would pass the money on to the unit. So there was lots of money coming for OCLC, not initially, but there was after a while. But I got a uh, sizable chunk of money from the state legislature and worked with Fred Kilgore, who Mm -hmm. you've probably heard of, Mm -hmm. 
uh, to, and he's passed on now, uh, to work with him and help build OCLC. Mm-hmm. So, Which is now used nationwide, all 50 states and abroad. How about worldwide? Worldwide. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, and that's, that is a like central library, core library catalog of a pretty much. A lot of libraries using that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, Marlboro, I was working at Marlboro School, and we, had, we were using OCLC mm-hmm. for them. And they, our library catalog was on that as well as so was, uh, you know, and we had the, 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 the tap in that we could look up materials from any library in the mm-hmm. LA area. So I was able to uh, add the State Library's catalog to OCLC and then also traveled all around the state talking to libraries to get them to join OCLC. Mm -hmm. So back in in those early days, there were no non-Ohio libraries using OCLC or belonging to OCLC. So I added about 65 Ohio libraries to OCLC. You're a persuasive gentleman. Uh, made a good case, I guess, and that worked out very well. And then, uh, uh, then an opportunity came up uh, in Denver, Colorado, with the Bibliographical Center for Research, which was a an organization that was started in 1937 as a regional union catalog, which basically means it had a catalog of cards. Uh, with locations from libraries and around the region. And at that point, there were about six states in it. And it was used as a finding tool. Mm-hmm. And then I added a bunch of states. And when I left, there was about, uh, oh, maybe uh, um, 12 states. Mm-hmm. And that worked out very well. And... Uh, Fred Kilgore was always very pleased with me. I'm <laughs> happy to say that. Right, right. And so then I, I uh, the opportunity came up in Denver to move to the BCR. And that uh, was uh, an opportunity to expand not only OCLC, but to change the whole thing at BCR, which when I went in, it was nothing but a card catalog. And I completely eliminated the card catalog and converted the whole thing Computerized to the form. Computerized it. Yeah. Wow. Fantastic. And uh, so you had bringing in a lot of people, doing a lot of data entry, getting those get that all computerized into a central computer system, yeah. which then was linked to other computer systems around the country, and and that's probably around the advent of the internet in the early eight, late seventies, early eighties, and trying to get all those schools and libraries talking to each other. I guess if I have any fame in the profession, it's because I added so many libraries to online catalogs, and. Uh, so then the opportunity came up in Denver, or in uh, Chicago, uh, at the uh, uh, catalogs, uh, not catalogs. The Center for Research Center Libraries. Center for Research Libraries. And that was, again, it needed a lot of change, so I automated the catalog there and uh, built, built it into an international institution, which it still is today. So your work of going around, you know, schlepping around the state of Ohio kind of paved the way for you schlepping your cookies around the world, yeah. bringing in member libraries from yeah. universities and libraries all over the world. Mm-hmm. I didn't travel overseas a great deal when I was in Denver, but in uh, Chicago I did a lot of I remember you travel. going to Seattle once when we were living in Denver. You Could brought, be. You there me. were always meetings and other things, and it was uh, there was always plenty to do, and we... Uh, built the whole thing to a much 
uh, broader situation. Now uh, they're in the process of converting uh, all the holdings to machine-readable form, which I had started when I actually built the plan for them, and they're still carrying that out. I retired from there in 1999, uh, um, end of 99, and uh, the thing now is uh, a lot of international activity right and uh, so I imagine that the current director of CRL is doing even more international travel and trying to get even more still trying to get even more libraries into that system yeah and I think that uh, he is doing that he has shrunk the size of the staff uh, but of course without well because you probably don't need a lot of those people doing all the data entry anymore yeah right so it was uh uh, it, it's still a very viable uh, exercise. BCR was closed down. It closed down about uh, three or four years ago. Okay. Uh, one of the people who worked for me as a cataloger there eventually became the director. Uh, but uh, I don't know that he's that good. Okay. So, <laughs> trying to be diplomatic about that. But, uh, <laughs> So anyhow, that kind of brings me up to uh, retirement, and uh, I did a lot of consulting because I had contacts all over the world. Sure. I was doing a lot of consulting. And you had a lot of, I mean, Center for Research Libraries was a not-for-profit organization, yes. so you have a lot of experience with running a not for a not an, a, I do. In an fact, NPF. all the organizations were not-for-profit. Right. So oh, okay. Not that I'm against profit. No, 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 no. But no, it but. just was easier to do a lot of things and I didn't have to worry about paying taxes. <laughs> right, right. Paying taxes so, in, from the organization. Yeah. And you don't have to answer to shareholders either. You right. don't have to answer to investors. Well, actually, well the some members, investors, right. Yeah, the members uh, would meet every year and there was always talk and so on about things. But uh, everyone seemed to be pretty satisfied. With and kind of in the same direction. I mean, I would imagine kind of the, with that goal of getting everything automated into one digital system mm -hmm. I mean and they're still automating I yeah. mean they're still uh, converting records and uh, they're going to be doing that for some time to come oh yeah and, yeah there's still there's a lot uh, of material out there I built two two new buildings I had inherited an old building which was ultimately torn down that was on the west side of the University of Chicago campus and I built two buildings on the south side uh, which are still there. I had a plan for building four units, but because we were no longer adding additional holdings, right, didn't really need. You to weren't do collecting stuff. materials no. anymore. It was what, all automated. What so. you had was what you had, and mm -hmm. so they aren't. Are they also, in addition, now not only automating the? Um, I mean, uh, uh, cataloging the. The, the books, the actual physical units of the books, are they cataloging the actual contents of the books as well now? Yes. And, and, and did scanning those as well? Yes. So that eventually the goal is the entire library of the world would be in a digital form that can yeah. be read on a device. And the whole thing could be done on this desk. Of course, yeah. <laughs> on one, one device, yeah. 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 Because yeah. So, I know the Library of Congress is doing all that now. Mm -hmm. Now, did, did the Library of Congress... Did you guys beat them to the punch in terms of a computerized catalog, or, or did they start doing things around the same time at the advent of microprocessing kind of in the late 70s? It was simultaneous, and of course they had a lot more money. Of course, of course. Uh, but um, I would say that neither one of us was particularly ahead, mm. and we 
Uh, Did you guys cooperate on oh, any yeah, kind of stuff? Oh, yeah, we cooperated on a number of fronts. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. That's cool. Mm-hmm. That's cool. So I'd love to talk about some of your travel uh, stuff. I've always kind of been an admirer of the, the, the traveling that you've done, kind mm-hmm. of Johnny Jet Setter that you are. <laughs> um, but you did a lot of traveling in, in Europe, obviously. You went to France and England and you know Germany. and I've been and in 100 countries. 100 countries. Uh, plus or minus a couple, a couple but... Uh, the I've been all uh, 50 states, United States, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there was a lot of travel in uh, uh, Africa, mm-hmm. uh, Asia, uh, a lot in Europe, because yeah. there was a lot of cooperation with European libraries, the sure. national uh, libraries, and um, not quite so much in South America, but some. Uh, Africa was particularly interesting because... They had a lot of materials in languages that are not widely held mm. in the United States or even uh, some parts of Europe. But there was a lot of uh, effort to try to get those things recorded, uh, converted. Before they go away, because yeah. a lot of those Af- African languages are dying. The people that speak them are, are being fewer and fewer. Well, not only that, but the climate is such that oh. it hurts the paper and so on. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it was uh, a real... Real effort to try to get that going. I would imagine there's probably, with all the political turmoil in Africa as well, you probably have some risk of losing materials to war, uh, fires and and burning down, burning of books and things like that as well. There definitely were opportunities for that to happen, mm. and we, uh, I've had a couple of experiences that were uh, a little bit frightening, pretty uh, dicey, uh, where you know I get chased out with guys following me with rifles and so on. Machetes and so on. Really? Well, they spend more time with uh, rifles than they do with machetes. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But the... Like like attacks by guerrillas or rebels or, yeah, or warlords and, or whatever? And, of course, there's always the fear in those countries that uh, somebody from the United States or European countries are coming in to try to take them over. Oh, yeah. So you had to kind of always deal with that. Now, the relationship with the librarians and the university people was was okay. Right. That, uh, oh, once in a while you'd run across somebody who was a problem. But um, but it was just kind of the ordinary guys in the street that were difficult. Distrusting they, of Uncle Sam. Yeah. Well, I, with good reason. I mean, it's no, it's no secret that it's very historically documented that we've been, you know, European assholes and gone all around the world and tried to shake our stick where we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. So. But uh, that was uh, a significant effort, and eventually, I mean, the plan that I wrote was to eventually to have basically the whole world mm-hmm. in one database. Wow. So whether that will ever occur, I don't know, but hmm. it'd be nice. I'll probably be long into my final reward before that <laughs> happens. But, uh, so. um, I'm, I, I was always very interested in uh, your stories about Japan. Um, the totally the kind Japan. of kind of being treated like a like a foreign dignitary when mm-hmm. you go like like you know royalty or some kind of visiting diplomat or something and and talk about some of the some of the state stuff you got to do there being kind of a guest of the state and things that you were able to go and see and do. Well, my first trips to Japan were when I was in the service, and so I got a feeling about Japan then and really liked it. Mm-hmm. Uh, what is it about Japan that you like so much? Well, I like the fact that the people are cultured with people they 
admire. Mm-hmm. And not to say that there aren't people there who would like to chop a leg off or something, but for the most part, if you are seen as intellectual and uh, accomplishment uh, was your goal and, and the uh, outcome of that, uh, they would treat you quite well. Uh, I've had a lot of interesting experiences there. Uh, I was giving a tour of the royal palace. Mm. Uh, I did not meet the uh, the emperor. Uh, when, when was this? Uh, let's see. This would have been in, oh, maybe about 85, 86 mm-hmm. uh, through there. Um, it was very interesting going through the... Uh, the royal palace, and and I'm told that they don't allow that for more than two or three people a year. Really? Um, Just the tour of the palace? Tour of the palace, right. Fantastic. And uh, I was staying fairly close to the palace in a hotel, which was not bad, and uh, went around, uh, went to a number of places, visited uh, a number of libraries, uh, spent a lot of time talking with colleagues there, uh-huh. and we went... Um, Did you pick up a little Japanese? Japanese who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, I, I did a little bit, but uh, the, the uh, cream of the crop intellectuals pretty much speak English. Okay, okay. And so it wasn't really a problem of communication. Sure, at all. sure. And I'm sure they would have provided a translator for anybody who oh, needed yeah. it. Oh yeah. But I've been to. I was. They honored me at a at a banquet, uh, which was very nice. And there were plenty of uh, opportunities to. So regarding that kind of being treated like a dignitary, and and it, it, was it from a perspective from their part of here's this intellectual from America who is kind of furthering the cause of education and worldwide communication. Was it, was it from that aspect or was there a, a, uh, an actual advantage to their government to be kind of part of CRL or was it being able to, I mean, what was the, what was kind of their incentive to have you there and, and, and provide this kind of, well, I think it was some of both. Uh, there was an opportunity for them to establish uh, connection with a major uh, U.S. facility, but there was also an opportunity to uh, get involved with somebody advising them, cooperating with them, and so on. So it's it's like most questions of that type. There's it's always a little bit of both. Okay, okay, and that really worked uh, uh, quite well. I spent a lot of time in Japan. I went south. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, when I was in uh, Vietnam. I was stationed for a while in Okinawa, mm-hmm. uh, which is mostly a U.S. military base. Uh, but that was interesting, and then there was an opportunity uh, to go up north. And so I went uh, west uh, in Japan. I went up north. Uh, it was funny. It was in Tokyo. It was quite pleasant and so on. Way up north, colder than hell. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, I remember... The guys there, because I was speaking at a at a um, seminar, and so they took me out, and we went to this bar, and uh, with a dirt floor, uh-huh. and there was a kind of a hand built 
benches uh, around the table, sort of like what we see as a picnic table when it's all one sure, piece. Sure, sure, sure. And you, but there was a floor where you put down on it, but you could step over and put your foot on dirt. Oh, okay. So it was interesting, you know, and uh, I like to see these kinds of experiences that uh, give you a feeling of what people are really like and mm-hmm. how they how they live. And I think they took me that to that place particularly so I could see uh, that kind of thing. And uh, So it's not just the glitzy, glamorous, you know, hey, this is what's happening in the city. This is all the lap of luxury. We want to take you and see, show you some of the countryside and see people out mm-hmm. in their in their real element and see people as they live. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, which I think is far more enriching than, than mm-hmm. doing touristy stuff. Yeah, it was uh, an excellent experience. And I don't even know how many times I've been to Japan. I don't have a count. Uh, it was... Uh, always an enriching experience to be there and uh, I particularly like Tokyo mm-hmm. uh, but also I like uh, other cities and uh, there's um, I spent a fair amount of time at the National Library of Japan sure sure uh, was that where the archive was with the 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 thing you got to hold the the manuscript the Told me the story about the manuscript they had. You. That was actually at the Royal Palace. Oh, the, at, that was at the Royal Palace. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I was holding a book that was written in 1100, mm-hmm. and it was one of the oldest books still existence in existence in Japan. Fantastic. Uh, that was really quite. Uh, and it was Chinese, right? It was an old Chinese script. Well, it was kind of a mixture, okay, uh, because the Japanese language, which was in in vogue, but they were still trying to work out a lot of the verbs and other things with it. So, uh, but it wasn't uh, entirely Chinese. Uh, there were chapters of Chinese, and it was. Uh, and was this on on rice paper, or yes. was it was a rice paper? So they yeah. have you put on like white gloves and and fantastic. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, that's really cool. So anyhow, that uh, kind of brings me up to uh, retirement. I've been doing consulting, and uh, not now. I'm fully retired now, but it. Uh, I did a number of consulting for uh, places in Europe and places here, uh, Canada, uh, Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. It's you know they're technical things, so it's right, right, right. not. Uh, really going into the detail of those things. I don't remember all of it anyhow. But, uh, <laughs> so, yeah, nice. So uh, did you... Now, uh, I'm going to go back to your childhood a bit because um, I've always uh, heard uh, you've talked about you were part of that generation of kids growing up in the 50s who were going and spending Saturday matinee at the Saturday matinee pictures with your friends, seeing the, the serials. Well, I was... I was born in the early 40s, so some of that was in the 40s, some of it was into the 50s. I would say by the time, say, the middle 50s, I was moving into high school, okay, so it was okay. different. But the earlier time, yes. There You're was like a, 10 years old, 8, 9, 10, and 11 years old. Yeah, and in fact, uh, because my parents both worked, and they worked in retail. Okay, they were uh, working on Saturdays. Well, they were working on Friday nights. Ah, so my father would come home for dinner, uh, supper. Uh, my mother didn't come home on Friday uh, for dinner. But anyhow, I would ride back with him, 
and go to the movies. Cool. And you'd meet up with your friends there? On... Uh, sometimes, but mostly I did that alone. Oh. And then, uh, and then I would come out in time to get in the car when my father was ready to go home. And then we'd go pick up, and Elmire's, you know, a small town, so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it was really easy to, uh, uh, you know, get in his car, which was across the street from the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, that particular theater, the Capitol Theater, which I don't know whether it's still named that or not, was showing always on the weekends uh, a serial mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, along usually with on Friday nights it would show two westerns fantastic so I would go and I didn't really get to stay to see all of the second movie but anyhow that was enough of the thing you kind of keep an eye on your watch and obviously and no, no, and no texting no paging <laughs> and then my mother worked about four blocks north on Water Street uh, from where my father's uh, was at the store, and this was before he started his own business. He had a furniture co- uh, 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 store. Yeah. Store, yeah. And uh, actually, at one point, he moved from that store in Elmira to manage the store in Corning, New York, which is where Corning Glass Corning was. Corning Glass, right. And, um, a little bit of a commute. But I was older then. Right, so, okay. A little yeah. more of a commute. And then by that time, I would go to the movies on Saturday afternoon and meet all my friends. <laughs> okay, okay. So you go Friday and Saturday. Well, I wasn't. No, I wasn't going to Friday nights then. I was oh, okay. Going to Saturday. Okay. Yeah. And but you like the serials. I mean, you collect all the old serials, the Flash Gordon yeah, and the, like the Cowboy ones. You got like Rocket, the uh, uh, Rock uh, Commander Cody, Rocketman from the yeah, Moon, and those. Flash Gordon, and uh, yeah. the old Batman serials from the forties yeah. and all that. Yeah, yeah, good stuff. Yeah, cool. Cool. So then you're seeing a lot of the movies in the 50s, um, or four, late 40s, early 50s. So, But you're watching the Western, so that's like Gary Cooper and... and well, a lot of Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers. Um, Randolph Scott, maybe? Occasionally, but Scott and He Cooper, was a little earlier than that. Well, they were not really the kind of Saturday afternoon... Western. Uh, people, uh, Western people. Uh, they were more... Dramatic and sophisticated. Gotcha. So, whereas the you wanted the gunfights and the fist fights and the the big barroom brawls yeah, and exactly. you know, all that, the breaking the chairs over yeah. each other and yeah. knocking out of the two story window and jumping off onto your horse. Roy kind of Rogers, stuff. Gabby Hayes, yeah, there you Evans, you know, Gabby Hayes, yeah, thing. So, and I probably know. like probably listening to Lone Ranger on the radio too. Oh yeah, we definitely did that. I um, after dinner, I would my parents would uh, sit down and watch television, but I would uh, go up to my room and turn on the radio and listen to all kinds of Now, were you shows. also listening to like the horror programs like uh, Suspense and, and the Inner Sanctum and all that that stuff too? When those were on, I often listened to those. Cool, yeah. cool. Uh, those were not on every night. There were s- half a dozen serials that were on like every night, uh, uh-huh, uh-huh. usually in 15 minute blocks. Uh-huh. Okay. So it was... The uh, Phantom, The Shadow, uh, Lamont Cranston. What was the other one? There was another... A whole bunch of those suspense... Uh, was there a Dick Tracy radio program before the Dick Tracy TV show? Yeah, there was a Dick Tracy. Um, and I can't remember a lot of the people who were in this. Oh, yeah, yeah. There weren't... They weren't so many of the scary kind. Right. The horror shows. This is much more the, the, there the were radio comedies. Drama. You know, oh, okay. Uh, there were a lot of people that uh, were doing uh, uh, shows that were filled with drama, like uh, 
Dagwood Bumstead. Oh, okay, okay, that right, kind of right. Show. Oh, yeah, the kind of um, yeah, comedy, comedy uh, sitcom almost like a radio sitcom mm-hmm. kind mm-hmm. of thing, or like yeah. Burns and Allen, or maybe Jack yeah, Benny, yeah. or some. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, I just thought of somebody else too uh, who was doing radio back then. Um, uh, oh, Amos and Andy, mm-hmm. and, and all I've that. Definitely listen to them. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. That, was was it Amos and Andy? Was the two white guys playing the two black yes. fellas? Yeah, that's yeah. back when, when mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> racism wasn't as much of a thing. But they were really good at it. Oh yeah, and they were. That's what they did. So, so. yeah, yeah. Um, and then when they came on television, of course they used black actors. Then. Right, right. Uh, I watched them too. So. Okay, because that was a lot of the early TV entertainment in America was stuff that held over from radio. Well, my father sold TVs uh, in uh, those big old furniture store units. Well, actually, there were con- there were uh, shelf units, you know, like a like a monitor. Now, sure, sure. Uh, we would. Um, he had one. He had a TV pretty early, and if I remember correctly, it was about 1953. That's pretty early. Their first for might even have been earlier than that. That's right. pretty early for middle class folks yeah. to have a TV. Yeah. So of course he got it at cost. Right. You got everything across. You got a lot of the furniture you got at your house now is yeah. from your dad's shop. So anyhow, that was uh, was interesting in that all these programs were uh, shown and uh, repeated, and uh, that was when radio. Well, they say that the 30s and 40s was the highlight of the, radio. The golden age of radio. And by the late 50s, radio was really fading. Right, because everybody was going to the movies more. Well, they were watching television. And watching television, yeah. So the the thing about watching or listening to these on the radio in the late 40s, in the first half of the 50s, it was really, I think, uh, the, uh, the really the best time of that, but... I suppose somebody who listened to the things in the 30s would probably argue with me. Sure, sure, that. sure. That's your, what's your Mercury Theater and all that kind of stuff. Listen to that. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. Orson Welles and yeah. all that. Yeah. 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 That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. So you started, uh, so you developed a really love for, for movies really early on, really mm-hmm. in your, mm-hmm. in your, you know, preteens even. So Same thousands of movies. Thousands and thousands. <laughs> I mean, you have a huge, huge collection of movies. So, but then also, so once you got to, um, so high school, what was high school life like? Was it what, what more most people think of high school in the 50s or, you know, like like the, the Bobby Soxers and the, you probably didn't have a lot of greasers running around. It was probably mostly, you know. Well, they weren't really greasers. There were, drapes. <laughs> there were people who, guys that wore blue jeans because... Dungarees. You know, we the, the good guys like me wore corduroys. Okay. So we okay. didn't wear uh, blue jeans, and they would wear a shirt. But those those were a vast minority of people, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and mostly those I, were kind of the blue collar kids, right? They were the blue yeah. collar kids. Maybe their old who, man drank a bit, or, well, or is that all just media bullshit? They were poor. Okay. Okay. That's the unfortunate thing about it. And because blue jeans are probably cheaper to buy than corduroys. And you had an opportunity to. Um, wear better clothes because you came from a more middle-class family. Right, right. So we did a lot of... Uh, people ran in what you now would call gangs, I guess. There were groups of people, 
And was it like cliques, or was it a little looser than that? Was it less exclusive and more just like this is my group of friends, or was it really like, yeah, fuck you, go to um, don't you know you're not allowed in here? Well, it was probably halfway between the two of those. Uh, there wasn't much interaction between the the poor guys uh, and the more middle class people. Mm. Um, where I went to high school, there were two high schools in Elmira, uh, Southside High School, which was pretty much uniform. Everybody mm-hmm. was pretty much the same, although there were a few poor kids. And then there was the Elmira Free Academy, which was a mixture of of really poor kids and really rich kids from West Elmira. Huh. And so that... Probably a lot of rumbling going on I don't know what was really going on there. We didn't pay an awful lot of attention to them, except once a year we had a football game between the two schools. Gotcha. So the the old school rivalry, homecoming was a bit... But the the Southside High School was fairly uniform, with a few exceptions, and everybody got along. Now, upstate New York, 1950s, probably pretty white. Yeah. Yeah, not a lot of... But... Again, Southside High School, the people on the south side of the river, uh, Shemung River, uh, there were very few blacks. Mm -hmm. I think my class had maybe 400 kids in it, and there probably weren't more than three black kids in it. Wow, wow. But Elmira Free Academy which included the area where all the blacks lived, and there were a fair number of blacks in Elmira. Uh, That was probably more like 20%, 30% black. Okay, okay. Uh, But we didn't really have the issue of... of There There, there was probably not a lot of racial tension. There wasn't any racial tension. I would say more class tension than anything else, like, like maybe... Even that, I think there was a lot of, I think, less class tension and more intellectual tension. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, where the people who were more scholarly uh, kind of gathered together. and mm, mm, Okay. Uh, kept so it felt along kind of IQ lines or education lines kind yeah, of thing. Mm-hmm, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, I don't I'm just really, always interested in the socioeconomic... Yeah, I don't really know... Elmire Free Academy and how it was organized all that well. Mm-hmm. So I really can't talk about that authoritatively. But uh, knowing Southside High School, it was it was uh, uh, pretty uniform, and uh, everybody. Oh, there were always the kids who their father beat them up at home, and yeah. they came in and gave yeah. a problem, and so some on. kid with a black eye or something. Yeah, or and so, back then it was. Uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I think that's been going on since time immemorial. So I didn't have any fights. I did have a fight, I think, in the seventh grade at the elementary school I went to. Uh, Back when elementary was still up through seventh, K it was, through no, it's through eight. Oh, K through eight, and so I so no junior high, just elementary and then high school. There was no junior high then. Okay, okay. So you had no middle had school, elementary school, which was eight grades and then four years of high school. Gotcha. And the thing was that during the during the sixth, what I was in sixth grade, or was it seventh? I guess it was seventh grade. 
there was a town that was to the south of the Southside High School uh, area and called Pine City. Mm-hmm. And they decided to that they really couldn't afford to put teachers in there. So they took the 7th and 8th graders and brought them to our school. Oh, geez. Instant and, clashing. Yeah, and I got into a, a fight in the... Uh, uh, at the lockers with one of the kids there, and uh, uh, actually, I punched him out. But <laughs> so, and after that, he was always very nice to me. So, uh, I don't know. <laughs> the lesson here is no. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, yeah. I mean, I never heard you ever talk about anything like that because yeah. that was always violence. Always was always very downplayed in our household, as yeah. it should be. So, and yeah. it's that way in mine too. So, well, that was a very long time ago. Yes, so. a very long time ago. Um, so, okay, so so then high school, uh, Southside High School, so then you go into, um, I always forget the name of the college you went to that was west of Elmira. Alfred University. Alfred University. So you went there for your bachelor's degree. Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's when you, was that when you were running with the crowd of friends who were writing reviews for the school newspaper? And mm-hmm. they were showing movies on campus in the cafeteria yeah, we, or in the library or something. Well, I was writing reviews for movies both in high school. Uh-huh. And, in fact, I was the editor-in-chief of the high school newspaper. Oh, I didn't know that. Maybe I didn't forget. And uh, it was called the Elso High. Elso High. Yeah. And... Um, this is a... Co- oh, that was high, high school. High school. And then I was on the newspaper... At uh, in college, but I wasn't the editor in chief. Okay, okay. Uh, my roommate actually was uh, uh, the editor in chief in our senior year. Uh, I was doing other things and was appreciating women. So of course, you, like you do. <laughs> I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't really into doing uh, the newspaper that much, and I thought about it at the time becoming a journalist, but then I decided against that. So then when I uh, I decided to major in English. When did you get the library bug? When did you get the library science? When did that really kind of grab you? Okay, I worked in the library all through college. Okay. At Alfred. At Alfred. And the the librarian, who was an elderly woman about 215 years Mm -hmm, old, mm -hmm. uh, she was really encouraging me to become a librarian. Really? uh, Because I was doing all these things. In fact... My junior and senior year, I was the I was in charge of all the student assistants. Wow! And they in the library in the library, and they they scheduled through me, and uh, I assigned them to various jobs. It's amazing hearing you talk about this, and and knowing what I know of you in my lifetime, and the jobs that you had, and all this stuff just. Stack, 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 stack. Yeah. Just modular leading up to where you wound up eventually. So, yeah, I did that, and uh, that was interesting experience. And so when I was getting ready to, well, I guess it was probably about the middle of my senior year, and I was thinking about uh, graduate school, and then I, about that time I got the preliminary draft notice. Right, right. And so I did that stuff I already talked about. Right. And I didn't, uh, but then I decided, well... I really want to go to library school because that seems like a good thing to do. So you got your yeah. That, so then later uh, you got your library science masters in science and mm-hmm. library sciences. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes. Okay. Cool. Yeah. So back to um, 
being interested in women and movies and all that. In college, you were telling me stories about they would show movies on campus, and you remember going to see James Bond movies. It's a topic you and I always hit on all the time. Well, Alfred is in a very, very small town, and the only movie theater in the town is the one that's on the campus that belongs Mm. to the university. Okay. So they would show... But I don't think they showed... They only showed movies, I think, on Friday night and Saturday night, maybe Sunday afternoon, I'm not sure. Uh, so Friday night, we all went to the movies. Cool, cool. And that was uh, date night, and we all had a good time. And Fun. Yeah, it was Fun. good. Cool, cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah, you were. Yeah, I think you told me before that you saw your first James Bond movie there. It saw was Doctor No. Nineteen sixty-one. You probably saw it a little after the main theater. It didn't run. show up until that theater, and because they didn't really do the first run, it was so a it few was weeks like after. it was like maybe uh, the fall of sixty-two that it finally showed up there. Okay, yeah. And then I was really taken with the James Bond. I'm sure you were. Sure, watched them all after that. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Because you took me to my. I've I've said this on the podcast many times. You took me to my first James Bond, the movie, the the 1976, much Mm -hmm. to my mother's chagrin. (laughs) (laughs) She won't listen to this. No, she won't. (laughs) But uh, cool, cool. So, um, so you also have always been an aficionado of of music you're really into jazz music and you're really into classical music mostly classical music when did that passion kind of start or was that kind of a a mixture in of some of the radio programming of what you were hearing in the 50s i mean was your father into classical music as well no no no. he was into popular music he liked pop so like pop tunes like uh pop vocalists and your frank your your sonata not so much vocalists but um your in the orca- home, there was a, a Hammond organ and a piano. Oh, yeah, your, your mom my, played Hammond organ. And my parents both uh, played that. In fact, we have her her Hammond organ right, now. Right. Uh, but there was a thing about um, my father playing... He played the organ a lot. Okay. And we had... Uh, but it was all kind of what I would call popular music. I didn't really get into classical music until later. Uh, there was a lot of interest in jazz at Alfred, and so I I listened to a fair amount of that. Yeah, I would imagine late 50s, early 60s. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think uh, it was probably when I was at Ohio State in graduate school that I got into, oh, okay. I got into uh, uh, more... Uh, Classical music, cool. and I like classical music. So, although I can't remember anything anymore, but oh, <laughs> so. cool, cool. Yeah. Well, yeah, you always took a, you always took um, uh, my stepmom, Loopy, and me, and her, her son Matthew. Always took us. You were always taking us to things when we would come visit. Mm-hmm. We were always going to the ballet or the symphony, or mm-hmm. I don't think I don't know if we ever did any operas, but I think we definitely hit the ballet and the well symphony in the stuff. summertime. The opera is not. Uh, Operating, so you have to do that in the fall. Uh, but um, we still go to the opera. We really like that. Cool. So, cool. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Nice. So, have you have you in some of your travels have you gotten to see some of that kind of uh, um, uh, more intellectual forms of entertainment around the world as well? Oh yeah, I've been to opera in Japan, in uh, England. 
uh, France. Um, there's uh, the English opera is particularly good, mm-hmm. and um, in Japan it was all in Japanese. Yeah, but, of course, uh, yeah. and there was always uh, uh, the uh, little Japanese character that kind of always got into the act, uh, and uh, but it wasn't American or it wasn't Western opera. It was mm-hmm. Japanese. Uh, I forget the name of the of the. Uh, that's not no theater. That's something else. That's something I have been to that. Okay. Uh, but I you've probably th- been to Kabuki, and you've probably been to. Uh, let's go through the history of Japanese uh, uh, stage. Uh, <laughs> all those different forms. Cool. Yeah, good stuff. Mm-hmm. Cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so these days, I mean, you kind of. I know you don't go out to the movies much because the crowds bug you and, and stuff. But you're you're more of a homebody, and they're and, too loud. Yeah, yeah. With their food crinkling and stuff. Yeah. yeah the, so it's easier just to uh, watch at home and wait uh, for Netflix to yeah, to give something. So or buy the movie. And, right. Right. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I went to uh, uh, after we moved to uh, Columbus. Then I went to enrolled at uh, um, Ohio State, and I uh, did a um, a master's in uh, public administration. There. So you got two masters degrees. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then I did, went. You on. didn't clean that one out in a year, did you? <laughs> no, I took me about. Uh, Two and a half, three years. So that's my early childhood. So when I'm an infant to toddler to mid, you know, almost like almost kindergartner, you're, my mother's working nights, you're home, uh, you're going to school and working and working for, at Columbus, uh, the state library and going to school and doing all of the above. That's a that's a and taking care of a of a infant toddler son on your own. No wonder I'm tired. No wonder you're tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was good. And then I went on to uh, into a PhD program, but I did not finish that. Oh, okay. Because I went on to uh, to uh, Denver. Oh, okay, okay. So, so you uh, started your how far into your PhD, to your dissertation did you get? Oh, I didn't actually do the dissertation. I I did about. Uh, Two years worth of classes. Oh, okay, okay. Um, and there was another year that needed, and then uh, working on a dissertation. But I didn't, uh, I didn't finish that. So. Okay. Mm-hmm. And mostly because there was more work to be done in Denver than really I could afford the time, and there wasn't really, well, University of Colorado is a good school, but the thing of it is, it's not close. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, from where we were. Well, yeah, we were in Lakewood, and that's yeah. in Boulder, so that's yeah. that's so, really far. That's so a, it didn't really work out well. And even back then, I don't think they had the Boulder, even had the Boulder Turnpike until the late seventies, maybe, yeah. is when they opened that. Yeah. So it was like side roads to to get to Boulder because yeah. the Bol- the Turnpike when when you and when you and Mom divorced and Mom married my stepdad and we moved up north. We moved to right near the Boulder Turnpike, and that was still kind of a new thing at the time. And that was in the uh, late seventies, mm-hmm. mid mm-hmm. mid to late seventies. Mm-hmm. So, um, so so these days, obviously, you're retired, so you're kind of playing house husband, and and you're not consulting anymore. No. So you're kind of like a man of leisure now. Yeah. Well, if you consider 
doing the laundry and the house cleaning <laughs> and uh, cooking. You're not at home with in a, in a house coat with curlers and bonbons? Well, yeah, and curlers. And, <laughs> but, no, there's uh, uh, lots to do all the time. Of course, of course. So, yeah. Of course. But now you kind of do your entertainment. You, you definitely have stuff you watch on your own and stuff you watch with, with mom, with, you know. And yes, although... I find because I'm reading, I don't really watch an awful lot of things on my own. So when you're on your alone time, you spend most of that reading. Yeah, and I, you know, like right now, I'm reading all the works of P.D. James. Okay, which I have all the books. And In I've addition read them all to before. London Review of Books and New York Times Review of Books, well, and it's not the New York New oh, York Review, New of York books. Review of Books. Yeah. So yeah, so lots of reading going on. Lots of reading, and I don't really. Uh, have the time to get into a lot of movies. I there are things that on one of the I guess you call it a secondary station in Chicago that has programs that I like to watch their foreign programs. Oh foreign your mystery programs that you yeah. watch. And so I like to watch those and that keeps me uh, well, the time that I spend on that probably maybe four hours a week. Yeah, maybe. not a lot. Not a lot. Not a lot so, so. Um, and with uh, Loopy working later and so on, uh, by the time she gets home, we get maybe two hours of time to watch something. So cool. we do that. Uh, one, one other topic that, that you and I have always uh, talked a lot about is, is, is food, the kind of the Epicurean part of you that, that uh, I would imagine probably all the world travel kind of lent itself to kind of becoming an, you know, an aficionado of food, really, of, of fine food, of, of, and knowing how to prepare that stuff. That was all kind of, always kind of a self-study thing for you, of just wanting to know how to do things on your own? Or Well, it's changed. Uh, I'm going to say maybe 15, 20, 30 years ago, yes. But because Lupi has Crohn's disease... Okay, yeah. And her diet is very limited. Mm-hmm. I can't cook any vegetables for her. Um, so she... And we both eat a lot less. Of course, of course. And that um, keeps me in a kind of a straight line of things. I do some casseroles. I, I cook fish two to three times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, we have pork chops maybe every two weeks. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. A steak about once a month. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't cook every night. We have what I call a light supper night, which mm-hmm. you come in and fix it yourself. Okay. What you want. Yeah, so, we kind of do that on Fridays around yeah. here. So. so anyhow, that works out okay, but because of her eating habits, I don't cook as much as I as I used to. Right, right. Um, and let it go, so... But, I mean, with, with, with a lot of your travels, I mean, you must have had some just kick your teeth in kind of meals around around the world i mean i mean you told me stories of of going into going to paris and going and paying an exorbitant amount of money to sit in the kitchen and have the actual head chef prepare something for you that's not on the menu yeah they uh in uh, france they really know how to cook oh yeah yeah they do yeah they do how are they how are the and the french people are all so lithe and sinewy they're not fat like us like brits and americans are well they exercise more but not in a formal 
kind of way that we do. Right. Uh, they walk. They walk lot. everywhere. They have public transport, the, yeah. the metro and all yeah. that. And now, that could be changing now, uh, but uh, back then it wasn't the case. So, <laughs> so the, 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 the Japanese visit, the, the, the thing you told me about the tour of the palace and all that was pretty outstanding. What was one of your other really great stands out as top five type travel experiences or, or visit experiences to one of your locations? Well, the Russian Academy of Sciences okay. uh, in uh, uh, Leningrad, uh, which was Leningrad then. Uh, now it was still St. Petersburg? But, well, St. Petersburg, yeah. yeah okay. But it was Leningrad because that's it was Soviet. Uh, that was very interesting. You were there in the middle of the Cold War. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. 85? Uh, let's see. Well, I was there a number of times. Oh, okay. But uh, uh, in the 80s, 90s, early 90s. Yeah. Okay. So tell me about the Russian Academy of Sciences. What made it stand out so much? What was Well, what? the collection uh, is really quite outstanding, and they've put a lot of effort into it over the years. So they continue to uh, uh, add a lot of materials to it that make it a an outstanding library. Uh, the whole idea is that the academy serves the university systems throughout the country, and that gives it a uh, a real prestige factor. Okay. So a lot of people are uh, really taken with getting something from the Russian Academy of Sciences. Uh, that was a very good experience. Uh, let's see. Uh, now, in terms of their collection, were they doing similar things in Russia that, like, the Nazis were doing in Germany, where they were kind of taking things from wealthy families to add to Hitler's collection, which then became a state collection, which now has kind of been scattered throughout museums throughout the world? Not really. Not really. Uh, they, uh, I won't say that they never uh, took appropriated things, things. appropriated somebody's uh, collection or whatever, but... No, they were they were oriented toward building a collection that nobody would be able to come back and say, "Well, this belongs to so and so." Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. Stuff that really was owned by the state. Yeah. It was, mm-hmm. oh, okay. Yeah, I, I think a lot of, and I don't know if maybe you agree with me this or not, but I've gotten the impression that that Westerners. Western Europeans and and Western you know American Western English speaking countries have always kind of dismissed Russia as these kind of gruff you know rough and tumble people. I think it's a political thing. Okay, yeah, I mean, that we were probably fed this line of bullshit yeah. to keep mistrusting because of political yeah. lines. Okay, so that makes sense. But but I've always. Everything uh, after a certain time period, my experience of, of whatever I've knowing a lot of Russians, having met and worked with a lot of Russians and talked to a lot of Russians or, or people from the old Soviet bloc, wherever that was, mm-hmm. wherever they were um, in America, that that really Russia is just as much of a cultural and intellectual center as your London, your Paris, your your Milan, your your. United yeah. States, you're... But it's the political situation that has kept Russia on the sidelines. Mm, mm. Kind of disenfranchised yeah. or from being brought to the table with the rest of the world, and intellectually because, speaking. Because the uh, 
political structure was always the one that kind of stood out in front of everybody. Of course, of course. Uh, that just made it all worse. Right. So, so again, like with Japan, is probably that mixture of wanting a Western mind to visit, to exchange ideas. And well, Japan is a different uh, factor altogether because they were they were doing a lot of things that they didn't brag about. Right, right. Because the Japanese have that kind of humility thing built they into their culture. They do have humility. They don't try to, try to brag about things. Right. They don't have parades with missiles down the front of the Red Square like they do in Russia or yeah. or jet flyovers with God Bless America like you do in, in yeah. the United yeah. States. So that, it's different. That dick-swinging thing that Europeans have going on. And it just uh, points out that any country is a mixture of a variety of these factors. Sure, sure. So you have to kind of look at all those factors to understand the country. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the the older I get, the more I realize (laughs) that everything we were ever taught about everything was bullshit. That there was some kind of agenda behind it. Mm -hmm. There was some kind of a thing that that we think of those things because we were made to think that way. That we were told... This is the way it is for a reason. And, and legitimate or otherwise, there was always a reason behind it. And we were told, you should think this, feel this way, because that keeps you going to work every yeah. day. In this country's along the same lines. Oh, of course, of course, mm-hmm. of course. So, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah, talking to people from around the world, no matter where you're from, no matter what your socio-political or socioeconomic background is, Everybody's just trying to get up and go to work and put food on the table for the family. Mm-hmm. And that's it. Mm-hmm. Find somebody to settle down with, have, pop out some kids, and, and <laughs> you know, have a comfortable existence. Yeah. Yeah. We're all the same. So really, in a, in a, in a, in a kind of a bird's eye way, kind of a, a, a higher elevation kind of way, you're really almost kind of like a cultural ambassador. Well, I think the opportunity is there if you have the skill. Uh, if you don't have the skill, then you don't get invited to be a cultural ambassador. So I think that you have to combine both uh, an intellect with a, uh, a skill set in something that the place you're visiting needs. Right. Yeah, that was kind of my question earlier with Japan, was like, why were they doing all this for yeah. you? Why Why did they need you there? Why did they want you there? Obviously, everything on this kind of level is based on a need. It's not just, hey, let's give this Western guy carte blanche to you know come in and see this stuff. There's a reason they're doing that. And they have a need. But Japan is particularly good and almost maybe unusual uh, in the uh, panoply of countries in that it looks at uh, building this kind of uh, intellectual and uh, cultural uh, aura without really pushing it too hard. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, Japan, I think, is, well, it's both underrated and at the same time it was run by, uh, especially building in the World War II by people who were like the Russians in a way. They were they were oriented. All about military might and, yeah. and power rather yeah. than the betterment of all. But now I think Japan has gotten beyond that and they're, uh, at least of course I haven't been there in years, but 
uh, just what I see on TV and so on, leads me to believe that they have moved beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, just, they it seems like they've come and built a lot of stuff over here and, and to just to sell to us, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so Russia, Japan, give me one more really great standout travel cultural experience. Well, let's see. Um, I just really like hearing these stories, so it's, you know, I get to brag about my dad a little bit. <laughs> um, not too much south uh, of the United States, uh, although Brazil has a pretty good intellectual structure. Uh, is, that, is that from the Japanese influence, maybe? No. Or do you think that's on their own? I think that they were populated by people from Spain and Portugal, and they had the right people who knew they needed to build a, a an intellectual structure. That was much more just about come over here and get gold, yeah. like the, all the original uh, Spanish explorers. Because there wasn't a lot of gold-seeking in Brazil. Yeah. Uh, Mexico, what are you going to say about Mexico? There's really nothing yeah. uh, strong there. I, I always feel a sense Although of... Although the university... Well, sure, sure. I mean, but I mean, universities everywhere kind of, I mean, that's your intellectual center right there, but I always kind of feel a sense of misfortune about Mexico, and it's like, well, gee, what, 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 what could the world do to, to make this all better for everybody? And I don't know what you can do, really. I guess every country has to kind of leave it up to themselves to make themselves better. Otherwise, we're just being empire builders and going around and, and shoving the flag up people's ass, you know? But I think Brazil and South America, and I think China, China is uh, has worked very hard, I think, on getting past the Mao years sure. and building a more uh, intellectual structure and building something that will serve all these people that take up so much room because it is crowded. Yeah. Every time. Why don't they expand out into all this trillions of acres of wilderness they have? Nobody wants to do that. They want to be together. Everybody wants to be crowded in, on top of each other in the city. Yeah. Well, well why is New York a thing? I mean, it's <laughs> the same thing, yeah. So it's uh, something they're going to have to get past. Humans are funny, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I was thinking that, you know, with all those people and having to build up all this infrastructure to house all these people in this one location, and the pollution is so bad, and, and it's, I mean, people are dropping like flies out there from the level of I mean the pollution you can actually see it in the air it's yeah China the pollution is bad but it's getting better yeah, yeah. they've awakened to the fact that they're going to kill off their people if they don't do something about it right yeah. so. you can't build all this infrastructure for killing off all the people that maintain it I think that, do you think it was like during the the last Olympics when they when they cleaned up the air for a time being? To, oh yeah, definitely. For the had, Olympics, where they kind of went, oh, we can actually do this. Yeah, that had something to do with it. And uh, other South uh, Asian countries uh, are not so intellectually strong. The universities are so so, but they're. They're interesting in their artifacts and their oh, yeah. the, their historical, we'll call them buildings, but the, uh, like temples and things. Yeah, like you're talking about like what is it? Uh, um, uh, 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 damn it, Laos and um, uh, not well. There's some in that in Vietnam, but uh, Laos and um, oh god, what's the other? Huh? 
No, not Thailand. Well, yeah, Thailand too. But there, what's the other? Thailand's very fascinating. But what's the other Southeast Asian, uh, Vietnam, Laos? Uh, 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 the one with all the temples. The one with they show in the Lord Croft movies and stuff. Anyway, I, forget. I can't think of the name can't either. Think of it either. Yeah, <laughs> it's a two word. I thought um, it's not Sri Lanka. It's not anyway. So they they've got a, a an, kind of an ancient cultural heritage to preserve there. Yes. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, so the, that's kind of, I think that a lot of those areas of the world, and even I think Central America, you know, Mesoamerica, Central America, there should be more of a push from the world community to preserve a lot of what they had down there as well, because that's there's a lot of real ancient beds of civilization in that area. In Africa, too, obviously, but... Well, I think Central America is still fighting the battle of um, what they were a century ago. Uh, there's an effort to uh, build something that might work, uh, but they don't really have the... They don't really have the skill to make it push from an idea... To an accomplished fact. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's, although you know, South America or not South America, Central America is interesting to visit. Cambodia, um, sorry, oh, Cambodia. <laughs> I just remembered yeah. Cambodia. Yeah, Cambodia is interesting too. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but anyhow, that's the problem I think with uh, with like Central America. There's they're struggling so hard to just kind of keep up, and uh, there's not really enough effort and enough money to really build something that would uh, rival America or whatever. Right, 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 right. So you you went to India as well, Mm -hmm. Um, visiting university or... or Both. Both Mm -hmm. libraries in a a state, state... things as well or just yeah you talk about a place you know when you think about China with all the people India is even more crowded oh yeah yeah um, every place you you know in this space right here there would be 19 people right right just around your chair yeah, yeah. so very interesting um, the New Delhi is really quite interesting because there's a lot of cultural institutions around it mm-hmm. uh, that go way back and they're uh, interesting to tour and to see. Uh, there's, uh, you know, everybody thinks about the, uh, uh, oh, what's the, damn, can't remember. The, um, talking about a place in yeah, India? Yeah, the Taj Mahal? The, yeah, the yeah, Taj okay. Mahal. You think about that, but uh, that's not really what. India is all about. No. There's that's just one one grave, one tomb for one one lady. That's it. Now, what uh, I don't know whether it's still the same, but when I was last there, uh, India still has an awful lot of British subjects, British citizens, uh, handling the uh, handling the uh, intellectual content and moving uh, organizations and and uh, universities ahead. So they're still kind of British, run by British expats kind Despite of thing? Despite the fact that it's been so long since 
uh, the British were kicked out in the late 40s. Right. Uh, yeah, they're still doing that. But it may be changing now. I don't know. Okay. Haven't been there. Haven't read much of anything about it. Oh, so. okay. 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 And you've been to places like Egypt and... Mm-hmm. Yeah, pyramids. Yeah. Hundred countries. That's no slouch. That's that's some. That's a lot of notches on the belt. Egypt, uh, so typical of North Africa. Although it's the most advanced country in North Africa, because uh, you go further uh, east, uh, west, the countries are mm, barely making it. Yeah, yeah. But uh, the Nile River and the Suez Canal, very nice. Mm-hmm, very nice. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Cool. So, what um, kind of this experience, this this you know years of experience and this the the travel and and the kind of the work that you did to kind of catalog the world's reading materials and that kind of thing. What's kind of what's your takeaway from all this? I mean, what what do you think is the future? I mean, what I mean, what do you think of as as how far humans will allow uh, the human race will allow ourselves to get before we get so far up our own ass that we just wind up well I have to think that you want to see it as a uh, part of a you're a cog on a gear sure and there's lots of other cogs on this gear and the thing is continually revolving and so, yeah, your cog does something, but somebody else, two cogs over, is going to carry it from there. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't see myself as some great person who's done some great things. Uh, I'm just another cog in the in, in the, the wheel. Thing. So you just do what you can, and other people will carry on. And uh, like at CRL now, they're they're carrying on. Uh, yeah, they're carrying on a plan that I wrote, but what the hell? So uh, they'll keep working at it, new plan, and so on. Hmm. So I don't know that you really can... Oh, I suppose if I were George Washington or something, you know, it, you'd be able to stand out and say, oh, well, you know, I did this or did that. Uh, but, uh, no, we all have experiences, and I think these experiences are, are uh, part of a whole bevy of experiences by a variety of people and hopefully there are enough people doing that that it kind of blends together into a uh, systematic approach to solving the problems of humanity kind of a meeting of ideas and Mm -hmm. blending together of intellect to to keep this whole ball ball this blue marble turning really but you know there's always people who rise to the surface and uh, or above the surface who are uh, credited in history for having done this or done that bunch of white guys <laughs> but I don't know that you I don't know that that really takes into consideration the people who are kind of carrying the load uh, and you keep moving that forward yeah so. I, I the 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 more time that the, the the further away I get from from grade school and high school history class, the more I feel like the more I it makes me wonder how the guys on Mount Rushmore, those faces, or you know this this you know slew of white guy achievement, of, of, does that really do anybody any kind of a service? 
I mean, other than other than you know, that's part of the political structure. Yeah, uh, you have to build, you have to make heroes out of people. Yeah, yeah. And so you build a statue or something, and they, uh, everybody kind of bows down and oh, great, great. And that's uh, part of the thing. But I think at the same time, there are always dozens, maybe hundreds of people who are really carrying the load forward. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, your Harriet Tubman's, your your George Washington Carver's, your yeah. your your guy driving the bus, your or whatever, doing doing whatever, doing providing a service for people mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and just going to work every day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Cool. So is there, um, you said you're reading a couple different, you're re- rereading um, uh, P.D. James. P.D. James, and I know there's a J in there somewhere. And um, is there anything uh, kind of coming out uh, or or that's on your radar that's coming out that you're really interested in, in seeing or reading or, or anything like that, or you just kind of like grab stuff as it comes? Well, I guess I'm not really reaching out for a, a lot of new authors, but because I have a substantial library at home, I'm kind of dipping into that to reread a lot of things uh, that I had already read. I know you reread like the Harry Potter books a couple times, yeah. and you, you go back and read Trollope every few years. Mm-hmm. and So I don't know. I don't... Uh, I don't... I suppose when, <clears throat> when Loopy retires... <coughs> excuse me. <clears throat> that we may take up... We take up the, um, we may take up some of these issues and so on, but I don't know. I just, I feel that at my age, maybe it's time to just rest a little bit. <laughs> so I don't know. I feel that over the course of about uh, 45, 50 years, I made some contributions. That's I'll cool. Leave it at that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Is that my good. water? I think so. No, it's my water. Oh. You want some of mine? There you go. Cool. Well, uh, I'm excited about the new Bond movie. You? I'm eager to see it. I'm probably not going to go see it in the theater because they play it too loud. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, Way too loud. That and the new Star Wars. You, are you? Have you been reading anything about that? I've uh, seen a few little things and so on. We'll see that, but. You know, I'm kind of past the stage where I have to be the first one in line to see oh, something. Oh, no, 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 yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I would imagine that probably within the next 12 months, I'll probably see those movies, and, you know, and... <laughs> You're okay to wait, content yeah. to wait. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. The One of the movies that I missed that came out over the summer was The New Man from Uncle, because I really wanted to see that. I like the original. That's on, um, I think it's on my... It'll be out at, at, at some yeah. point. Uh, it'll be yeah. on video, but that just left the theaters a few weeks ago, so that probably won't come out for quite a while. Well, but, but actually, a lot of the theaters or a lot of the uh, movie producers are, produ- are are sending them out on uh, DVD a lot sooner than they used to. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. Uh, I think because they feel that more and more people are buying DVDs or renting them, and that's a good way to make money. Sure, sure. Just uh, like getting theaters tickets, that yeah, kind of thing. Yeah. So. Cool, cool. Well, this has been really good. Thank you for for coming and being on the podcast. My pleasure. Um, I really enjoy hearing all the the stories and the travel and the experience, and it's all things that I grew up hearing about and has kind of uh, 
kind of set the tone for my aspirations for wanting to of how I wanted to view the world and of, of kind of things that I wanted to go see and do. And, and I've kind of always been kind of an admirer of, of your experiences. So, Well, one of the things that always makes me sad is that I remember that you and your mother and Jack went uh, east, I guess, to visit uh, her mother. And, I, and maybe uh, her dad was still alive. I don't remember. Um, but I know coming back through Illinois, you were certain that you were going to be dropped off at our house and I, to live I've, there. I've told that story on the podcast before. Yeah, yeah. that the, the the summer, the dreadful summer of of eighty uh, five. I was going to. Uh, we took a very long motorhome trip across the country, starting in Colorado down to, down to uh, the uh, Grand Canyon and the Four Four Corners region, all the way through. Arizona and, and Texas and, and all the way across to Florida. I went to Epcot Center and then went and visited my mom's parents up in, or relatives in North Carolina, which was a lovely visit, and uh, Virginia, which was not as much of a lovely visit, and West Virginia, which was really not a lovely visit, at the end of which we were going to swing northward and come I-70 through Illinois and meet up with you, at the end of which I was going to come live with you. And, uh, yeah, they were coming along 80. About 100 miles outside of uh, yeah. outside of where we were going to meet, my mom said, you're not going to live with your dad. And I had to go back home and unpack the box that was had the shipping label on it and put everything back. And it was one of the... That was pretty sad. That was one of the soul-crushing moments of my childhood. But... Uh, but, yeah, thanks for being on, and, and this was a good chance to kind of record this for posterity and talk about stuff and and you've led a very uh interesting life kind of a kind of almost like a renaissance life i know you did some painting back in the day too mm. and the occasional uh hanging out with german stewardesses etc <laughs> <laughs> so you know you've you've had a yeah I, I i definitely have always kind of understood why you had an attraction for the james bond movies that kind of jet setting adventuring kind of and it, you know obviously you're not going and shooting well i packed a gun shooting <laughs> spies you got your chamois leather case but <laughs> but just like that kind of aspirations of of intellectual pursuits and kind of some some sense of sophistication and trying to constantly better yourself and maybe make a contribution and I think that well some of it's luck and you uh, have to be at the right place at the right time yeah yeah so well I enjoyed this thanks yeah me too thanks I love you dad and uh, thanks for having uh, for coming on good I'm at St. Michael on Twitter that's S-A-Y-N-T-M-Y-K-L you can find us online as something2xp Please subscribe and review us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and Google+. Check out the blog, listen to past episodes on our WordPress blog, that's something2xp.wordpress.com. Email us at something2xp at gmail.com, and remember, please be kind. You've just listened to the Something Something Experience podcast with your hosts, Michael John Simpson and Kitty Brown. Something 2XP was conceived and produced by Michael John Simpson. Intro music, Ways to Change Faces, and outro music, Scorpio 37, was written, produced, and provided by the talented Sebastian Ciceri. You can find us everywhere online as Something2XP. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and WordPress. Please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and Google+. 
email us at something2xp at gmail.com. We invite your feedback. Please be kind. <laughs>